Hi, everyone. I miss you guys. I miss my church community. I miss gathering on Sundays. It's just before noon on Saturday. I'm here at the church. I'm recording this message, but it doesn't feel the same to preach to a computer screen, even if I am here at the church. Um, I have just my appreciation and love for not just the church as an abstract idea, but the particular church, the people of God that God has graciously given me to lead you guys. My appreciation and love for you has deepened so much over these last few, few weeks as I've been praying for you guys, touching base with you, hearing about the challenges that you're walking through, the breakthroughs that you're experiencing. Uh, I'm really looking forward to when we can gather together again and celebrate what God is doing in a way that isn't mediated by screens or technology. As I've been saying to a lot of people, the technology is awesome. I thank God for it. Uh, but it's, for me, more beneficial as a supplement, not as the main course. But this new season does give us new opportunities to grow as disciples as we're forced into a smaller circle of a smaller so social circle and we are given new opportunities to uh, grow in our own personal relationship with Christ and to look for new ways and to stretch ourselves to connect with um, other people and other believers in our church and in our world. This morning, the scripture reading was from Genesis chapter 8 and 9. If you haven't read it, just go back a step in the worship guide and make sure you do read it, because I'm not going to be covering that ground here in the message. Uh, before we move through the text, though, I want to speak to those who are listening, maybe for the first time. I know that because of the pandemic, because of what's going on, things are stirred up in people's hearts. They're asking, I think, really important, good questions. Coming back to central questions, where can I find hope? Is there power that allows me to endure and persevere through this? Um, where do I look for, for guidance, for peace in the situation? Do I actually believe that there's a God or some kind of higher power? How does Jesus, the Bible, faith fit into um, all of what's happening? Is that something I should be exploring? There's all kinds of um, spiritual seeking that is happening right now. And I'm really thankful for that. And I want you to know that if you're here because You've clicked on a link through Facebook. You've Googled and found us. Um, it's been recommended by family or friend to listen to us. I want you to know that I'm glad you're here. And I'm glad you're listening to this. And I don't think you're listening by accident. I want you to know that there's hope. I want you to know that you matter to God. One of the last verses that we left off on in this series was Genesis 8 verse 1. But God remembered Noah. And I think it's really, really important for people to hear that you are not forgotten by God within this current storm. You may be walking through dark valleys, maybe some of the darkest you've ever walked through. But God can take that darkness and that suffering, and instead of allowing it to continue, to wreak havoc in our lives, to overwhelm us, God can actually redeem it. He can lead us through it and out of it. And that means he can 
recycle what is what looks to be and maybe we might even feel ought to be a situation that drives us into despair and you can recycle it and to turn it and to redirect it and transform it so that we come out the other side realizing God has used something that could have been so destructive in my life, but he used it for something profoundly good. And that can happen when we turn our lives over to him. I'm going to speak about that a little bit later. But I'm glad you're here, especially if you are exploring questions of Jesus, God, faith, the Bible. There is hope. And it is found in the person of Jesus. Let's get into the text this morning. So Genesis 8 and 9, this is sort of the second half of the flood story. Uh, Last few chapters have been dealing with pre-flood and then the actual flood. And now we are on the other side of the flood and the waters are beginning to recede. Let's remember why the flood actually happens, right? In Genesis 1 to 11, there's this avalanche of sin that grows ever more destructive. It successively corrupts and distorts God's good creation, including God's special creations, these human beings called to bear God's image faithfully into the world. And this flood is a global judgment that's designed to stop the bleeding, as it were. God has reached a place in chapter 6, verse 6 of Genesis, where it says, the Lord was sorry or the Lord was grieved that he had made humanity on the earth. And he was grieved in his heart. God, God's aspirations for what he wanted to do in and through and with human beings is thwarted to such an extent that he is heartbroken over the state of humanity's relationship with him, with each other, towards creation. The world is filled with violence and hatred and darkness. And so... We might assume that what the flood is, is this angry outburst of punitive judgment towards a God who's punishing people for disobeying him in a very narrow sense. But that's not what's happening here. The flood is a result of God's grief. And God does need to judge and condemn humanity's sinful pattern. But he does it through water. And that's important because in scripture, water is a symbol for cleansing, right? Water is a cleansing agent. And so the symbolism is really clear about what God is doing to the world. God intends to cleanse his creation so that it can start over. There's many different ways God could have judged the world if what he wanted to do is enact a final judgment, but he doesn't. He judges with water so that the world can be cleansed and a new beginning can be established. There's a really, really interesting quote from, well, seriously, it's from the Bible for dummies. You know, those dummies books, the Bible for dummies, the Bible for dummies is actually excellent. And I steal and borrow from it often. And there's a great quote in here about the purpose of the flood that I think is worth reading. It says, The purpose of the flood seems to be related to God's good news agenda. The earth was cursed before the flood. Why? Well, just as when Cain killed his brother Abel, the earth received his blood. 
the Bible says after Cain's time, violence increased on the earth. And therefore, the earth took in a lot more blood. And so by sending the flood, God not only judges humanity for its wrongdoings, he's actually cleansing the soil of its pollution. In short, God is being presented as a kind of cosmic ecologist who cleans up the earth from the damage caused by human sin. This motive for the flood also explains the commandment or mandate that God gives to Noah after the flood. In Genesis 9-6, whoever sheds the blood of a human, by a human shall his blood be shed. Not only does the earth have a clean start, but humans do too. I like that idea of God as a cosmic ecologist, that the effects of our sin aren't just isolated within our own lives or our own personhood. They spill over into creation. And God wants the entirety of his good creation, which he loves, to be cleansed and to have a reset. I mean, maybe more than ever because of this pandemic, we are sensitized to talking about washing our hands and the need to uh, make sure that everything is clean and the importance of hygiene. And that's kind of what's happening here. God is not giving up on his creation, but he is recognizing that there has to be a serious renewal through a major reset. Pastorally, I would say there's three things that I would want us to take note of this morning. And the first might seem really obvious, but I think it's really important for us to hear given our current situation. And that is the flood waters recede. Verse three, it says, the water receded steadily from the earth. And at the end of the 150 days, the water had gone down. And on the 17th day of the seventh month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. The flood waters eventually receded. The ark came to rest on solid ground. And I want us all to hear that this morning, that we're all in this storm of COVID-19 together, but there are other smaller, maybe in some ways bigger storms that each of us are also finding ourselves in. But I think it's important for us to understand that those storms, those floodwaters, they don't last forever. God will bring us through. When you're in it, it can feel crushing and you can wonder, is this ever going to end? But we need to remember that the waters recede. There is going to be relief. I was speaking with someone this week over the phone who's been battling a number of really, really challenging physical um, consequences from um, a series of illnesses. And we were just talking about how she understands what she's going through and how she processes what she's going through and more importantly, how she draws strength from God on what she's going through. And she said to me, you know, one of the things that's been really important is just to remember and to recognize that this time in my life that is presently really, really hard, it's just a part of my life. There's a before part of this and there's going to be an after. This isn't my life. This is just a period of my life and it's going to end. And I think that's really, really wise for us to keep in mind when we find ourselves in these storms, whether it's COVID-19 pandemic, an illness, a struggle in our marriage, a 
point of tension or challenge at work, these storms don't last forever. The waters recede. God brings us through. In Psalm 40, verses 1 to 3, the psalm celebrates the fact that God hears our cry and he doesn't leave us in the storm. He doesn't leave us in the pit. It says, I waited patiently for the Lord and he turned to me and he actually heard my cry. He lifted me up out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and the mire, and he set my feet on a rock and he gave me a firm place to stand. And then the psalmist says, he put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. The storms don't last forever. The water is going to recede at some point. There is relief coming. God is going to lift you out of the slimy pit. He's going to set your feet on a rock. He's going to put you back on solid ground. But like the psalmist says, I had to wait patiently for the Lord. It wasn't necessarily on my timing. I didn't just pray. And God didn't, didn't just do it. I waited patiently for the Lord. And he turned and heard my cry. I love that grace note and that note of hope where the psalmist says, he put a new song in my mouth. God isn't just taking us through this time in order to um, return us to normal. He's taking us to this through this time to form us in new and fresh ways so that we have a new song to sing. We have a new mission to lean into. We have new capacities. We have new depth of our understanding of who he is and what we are created for. So even though there will be elements of our life which returns to normal, our life, in a sense, is supposed to take on a new song, a new hymn of praise to our God. Notice in Genesis 8, verses 15 to 17, and this is the second thing I want us to notice, that God calls Noah and his extended family out of the ark to be fruitful and multiply. In verse 15, it says, Then God said to Noah, Come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives. Bring out every kind of living creature that is with you, the birds, the animals, all the creatures that move along the ground, so that they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number on it. And then in skipping ahead to chapter 9, verse 1, Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Right? This is a very obvious echo, same language that was given to Adam and Eve in the garden. This creation mandate to develop the creational potential, to be culture-making gardeners. God is making it very clear this was not meant to be an end to the human story. This is a reset. It's a refresh. Now, in a Jewish commentary, um, the following was written, and I think it's uh, really, really interesting. It says, the climax to the biblical flood story shows an illuminating contrast to its Mesopotamian counterparts. Because ancient cultures at this time, uh, many of them had flood stories um, through which they were trying to teach people what matters most in life. And this comment, uh, commentator continues and it says, the heroes of the Mesopotamian flood stories were the recipients of divine blessing. Um, and the way this manifested was that 
The heroes of the Mesopotamian flood stories were granted immortality and they were removed from human society. Isn't that interesting? The blessing of, of the gods for those who endured this flood was that they got to be extracted out of creation and got to kind of join the gods in this ethereal realm above. Contrast that to the biblical story where God's blessing to Noah and his family is socially and creationally oriented. There's not a withdrawal from the world, but instead there's a renewed call to be fertile and to utilize the resources of nature for humanity's benefit. Man, that's really, really significant and powerful. That again, God, when he does save us, when we turn our lives over to him, he doesn't save us from this world. He saves us for this world, right? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world, meaning my, my kingdom doesn't operate on the principles of worldly kingdoms that seek to accrue power and use it with no reference to God. Jesus's kingdom is not of this world, but his kingdom is for this world. He is saving and cleansing and, in a sense, resetting a people with a vision to go out into the world and be a conduit of blessing. I think that's a really, really powerfully important part that we as Christians now are called to be fruitful through the um, spiritual gifts that we have, through the passions that God has given us, through our natural talents and abilities, our personality, our experiences. We're supposed to take all of those things and say, God, how can you use me to be fruitful and to multiply your blessing in and through the earth? I, th I think that's an awesome, awesome vision, and it's a really helpful understand. Uh, it's a really helpful window into how to understand discipleship. Discipleship is not just about me growing in my relationship to God, such that I experience God's peace and blessing in my life, and it's just sort of an individual transaction of blessing. It's about God blessing me, yes, and me receiving love and power and grace and wisdom and guidance from God so that I can go out into the world and be fruitful and multiply. The third thing that I want us to see is that God commits himself to his creation through the establishment of a covenant. This happens in Genesis 9 verses 9 to 17, but it's in verse 12 and 13 that it really reaches its focal point. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I'm making between me and you and every living creature, a covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. God says, I'm never going to destroy the earth with floodwaters again. And he says, this is going to be the sign that I've set my rainbow in the clouds to show, to reveal, to remind me of the covenant that I've made with the earth. Now, a few things to note about this covenant is that it is unilateral. It's not contingent on Noah or even the earth's reciprocity in any way. It's an unconditional covenant. And it is made not just with Noah, but it is made with all of creation. So there's a really, really important um Note here that, again, God's purposes in the world um, can't be minimized or reduced to simply wanting to be involved in people's lives and save individual souls. God, and we see it here, 
Um, but it makes sense when you understand what God is trying to do in these early chapters of Genesis. God has always been interested in bringing his glory and goodness and blessing to bear on all of creation. And so his restorative work that happens in and through Jesus and as a result of the gospel is meant to spill over, not just so that individual souls are saved, so to speak, but that individuals come into a relationship with God. And as they come into right relationship with God, they come into right relationship with each other. And that changes how they interface with each other, how they build societies, how they craft cultures. And that changes how they interact with creation, that they recognize they are supposed to have authority over it. But that authority is to use it wisely in order to be a blessing, to be fruitful and to multiply, not to abuse creation, but to use it wisely and strategically to reflect God's goodness back to this good creation. Now, there's a word here that for some of us, we might be familiar with it. And that word is covenant. You might hear that a lot in church, but you still might have a hard time understanding what it is. Probably the simplest way to think about a covenant is a very, very serious promise. Right? We used to talk about marriage as a covenant, entering into the covenant of marriage. The closest concept that we would have probably as modern readers to this is a legal contract. When you're signing a legal contract to purchase a house, let's say, that in a sense is a covenant. You are covenanting with the parties involved to say, I am going to do this and that this commitment is binding. I can't just wake up the next day and say, oh, I signed these papers, but I actually didn't mean it. I'm, I'm opting out. There's all kinds of legal consequences that are going to kick in when you do that. And a covenant in scripture carries that same weight of import. It's not just an intention to help someone or a general posture of, yeah, I'm willing to sort of do this or that. It's to say, I am going to do this. I promise this and you can literally take me to the bank on it. The covenant is a serious formalized agreement. And the covenant is a way or a means for God to formalize a pledge of blessing towards his creation that he's not going to undo it. And this is the first of many covenants. There's an Abrahamic covenant, a Mosaic covenant, covenant a Davidic co covenant. And each of the covenants are slightly nuanced, but they're essentially God saying, I'm going to bless you. This is what I am promising to do in and through your life. And the rest of the covenants have stipulations. But even as these covenants unfold, one of the questions that begins to, well, it should begin to kind of bubble to the surface, um, kind of move to the forefront of your mind as you see this pattern of God blessing, but his people rejecting and ignoring him continually or being obstinate is how far is God going to go to keep his promise of faithfulness and blessing towards his people, especially when his people seem hell bent on doing what is right in their own eyes, all while rejecting and ignoring him, right? God just keeps pursuing, keeps promising, keeps establishing these covenants, even when his people turn from him. Like, where is this going? Is God just going to get fed up at some point? How far is God going to go to keep his promise to be faithful, to bless 
his people if they continually revert to these immature, um, destructive patterns. And the story of Noah actually gives us a really important clue that allows us to answer that question. Most of our translations will translate um, the Hebrew word, a bow, as rainbow. And that's not wrong. That's how it's used in Hebrew. But the word for rainbow is the same Hebrew word that is used for a bow weapon, like a bow and arrow. And this offers a pretty interesting and important image. Right? The bow in ancient cultures was often in the armory of a divine warrior, some god or angelic being in the ancient Near East. And this divine being who had access and, and was armed with this bow, it was a symbol of divine judgment. We might think of the Greeks with Zeus, uh, this bearded old man up in the sky holding a lightning bolt ready to hurtle it down to humanity. But that's how the ancients thought about uh, divine rulers and powers. But they would just, instead of a lightning bolt, they had a bow. The bow was the armament that was used to um, facilitate divine judgment. And so to have God in this story as part of his covenant to all of creation to set his bow in the clouds, in the sky, is actually a really, really pregnant image. Because at first we might think, oh, okay, if, if the bow is like a war thing that the gods would use against humanity, God putting his bow in the sky, I guess that would mean he's kind of calling a truce. He's saying, I've hung up my bow. This is a sign that I'm going to withhold judgment. I judge the world once. I'm not going to judge it again. But it's actually something more powerful than that. I mean, if the rainbow is God's warrior bow, as it were, think about where the bow is directed, right? Where, where The bend of the bow when it's notched with an arrow. If a rainbow was a bow, where would it be directed? The bent bow is not aimed towards earth. The bent bow is aimed at heaven. In the Jesus Storybook Bible, Sally Lloyd-Jones hits the nail on the head when she writes these words. God's strong anger against hatred, anger, and death would come down once more, but not on his people or his world. No, God's war bow was not pointing down at his people. It was pointing up to the heart of heaven. There is another judgment that would come. But God said, I will absorb that judgment myself. I will take the hit myself. I'll put myself in the line of fire. Jesus said in Mark 10.45, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And a prophecy about Jesus, foretold hundreds of years before, said that he would be pierced for our transgressions. He would be crushed for our iniquities, our sin. 
the punishment that has brought us peace would be upon him. And by his wounds, we could be healed. Do you see how understanding some of these early stories from these early chapters of Genesis shed new light on the power of Jesus and the power of the gospel and why it's such good news? See, Jesus took the judgment that you and I deserve because of our sinfulness, our hard-heartedness, so that we could have access to the life that he deserved because he was the righteous one, and he's willing to exchange that for us. Jesus, in a sense, took the poison so we could have the cure. And he answered that question that um, builds intention as the biblical story unfolds, which is, how far is God willing to go to keep his promises, to keep being faithful to a people that hate him, that ignore him, that turn their back on him, that close their minds and their hearts and their eyes and their ears to him? How far is God going to go? Well, Jesus reveals just how far he is willing to go in order to love you and to save you. He is willing to go all the way to the cross. Right now, we are in this storm, these waters of COVID-19, this pandemic. But eventually, the waters are going to recede. And eventually, the boat that is your life is going to settle on ground of some kind. Where, where are you going to land after this? Do you have hope for a new beginning? Are you going to settle for landing on shifting sand? Or do you want to land on something solid? Do you want to make sure that when your life kind of resets after this, after these floodwaters have dissipated, do you want to be sure that your life is on solid ground, a new footing where you can move into the future with hope and peace? Because there is absolutely a firm foundation upon which you can build your life. And you can build and, and the life that you can build on it, it is fruitful in every dimension. It is multiplicative in terms of how you can be blessed and then in turn be a blessing to others. And the really good news is that you actually don't have to wait until this storm passes before you can start building on it. Jesus can, can become an anchor in the storm right now. Jesus can meet you in your spiritual, economic, emotional, relational storm right now. And you can receive grace and power and forgiveness and hope right now. You can access his new kind of life right now. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to perform religiously in order to justify it. You can receive it by grace through faith, simply by trusting in Christ. That's part of the central good news of Christianity is that what Jesus has for us, he has paid the price for it. You don't have to pay the price for it. He has. 
And what's opened up now to, a, to us, to you, is a God-orchestrated reset and cleansing that can help you to deal with all the things that have polluted your life and heart up to this moment. God calls Noah and his family out of the ark and says, come out. I got a mandate for you. I got a mission. This isn't the final chapter. This is a new beginning. And that's what I believe God clearly wants you to hear in and through this story as well. God has plans for you and for your marriage and for your family, for your business, for your future. He has a mandate and he wants to use you and your unique and special individuality to be a channel of his love and blessing to others. There's nothing more important in life than allowing God to help you and to heal you and to forgive you and then to put his new creation power inside of you so that you learn to live the kind of life you were always designed to live. It's amazing. It is what you were designed for. And so as you continue to ignore it, and to sideline it, you're just going to feel like you're always not quite connecting with what matters most. But in Jesus, you can connect to the living God, the author of life. Now, if you're wondering, I don't know, I don't know how to connect with that kind of life. You enter it by starting and entering a covenant relationship with Jesus, that word that means a serious commitment. That's what it means to be a Christian. I mean, some people throw that word around that it means little more than I was born into a generically Judeo-Christian, a family that practiced Judeo-Christian values. But that's not what a Christian means in the biblical sense. The Bible says that to be a Christian is to enter into a covenant with Jesus. And that's not the same thing as believing things about Jesus or even reading your Bible or even going to church. You can do those things and still not be in a covenant relationship with Jesus. Because to enter into a covenant with Jesus means to turn your entire life over to him. It's a whole life commitment that I'm now going to live for Jesus in response to his whole life commitment to me. I understand that it's not a relationship that I can earn, but I can receive it by grace through faith, right? As I trust Jesus. And as I do, I want to learn how to live my whole life to please and honor him because I've seen what he's done for me and I'm beginning to understand the ramifications of it. And if that's you this morning and you're tired of being overwhelmed by the floodwaters, and you want to get back on solid ground, don't just settle for any ground. Make sure that you are reestablishing and resetting your life on the solid ground, the rock, the firm foundation, which is Jesus. And you could do that by simply praying a very simple prayer like this. So this is a prayer that I might lead someone in if they were tired of living with themselves at the center of their life and saying, Jesus, I don't understand everything about who you are, about the Bible, about faith, but I feel a burning in my heart. I know I need to yield to you. This is how I would lead them to pray. Jesus, I realize that I need you, maybe in ways that I'm not even aware of, 
but I am tired of feeling hopeless and anchorless in this storm in my life. Jesus, I need solid ground. I need hope for this life and hope for the life to come. And I believe only you can offer me that ground of hope. And I'm tired of running from you. I'm tired of ignoring you. I'm tired of rejecting you and dealing with all the consequences that come from my stubborn refusal to acknowledge you as the true Lord and leader of my life. Today, I want to give my life to you, all of it. I want you to be the leader of my life. I, I don't know exactly what that means, but I want to learn. I want to surrender my life to you. Forgive me. Help me. Heal me. Amen. I want you to be encouraged. There is hope even as the floodwaters surround you. Call out to Jesus and let him establish you on solid ground. And may the love of God the Father and the grace of God the Son and the fellowship of God the Holy Spirit be with you all this week. Amen. God bless, guys.